Hi, this is Ben Eshmaid and welcome to the King's Place podcast. It's no easy task to reinvent the classical concert experience, but that's what acclaimed American pianist Jeffrey Siegel has been doing for the last five years. To learn how he carefully introduces and guides you through masterpieces in the piano repertoire, I joined him at King's Place. What made a busy concert pianist want to start this kind of alternative career, this keyboard conversations? Tell me a little bit more. I, I would meet people after concerts who would say to me, oh, I love music and I go to lots of concerts and I listen to lots of music, but I wish my listening experience could be more than a pleasant ear wash of sound. <laughs> Can't a musician like you make a more enriched and focused listening experience for a music lover like me? And I constantly meet people who will tell me sheepishly, oh, I know I'm missing something not to have Beethoven in my life. And I gave Ben a great deal of thought to both of these listeners, and I thought, isn't there a way that one can take this great music, enhance the listening experience, therefore keyboard conversations, which I should stress are concerts with commentary. These are not lectures about music with little <laughs> musical examples. I'm not a lecturer who plays, I'm a concert pianist who talks. Every work on the Keyboard Conversation program is performed in its entirety. What we like to think of as the plus is that prior to the performance of each work, I speak to the audience briefly and in non-technical language about the piece of music they are to hear. So when I sit down to play the piece straight through, I really do feel that the audience is listening with greater attentiveness and focus and appreciation than might have been the case otherwise. And each program concludes with a short Q&A that I encourage the audience to participate and to ask what questions they'd like. We're going to be talking later about some of the concerts that we've got coming up over the, over the next year or so at King's Place. When you look through the information, they're very meticulously put together. It's interesting. I get an idea for a program such as Gershwin and Friends or Russian Rapture, Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, and the number of pieces of music that I could play and talk about would keep the audience there for four days. <laughs> How does one choose what's to go within the hour format? I have to say it's very difficult to leave out so many compositions mm. that I'd like to share with the audience. Do you choose pieces that are short? We've talked about Gershwin. Rhapsody in Blue obviously isn't very short. Well, Rhapsody in Blue, which will be on our opening program in this fifth anniversary season of Keyboard Conversations, uh, it's not short per se compared to some of the other pieces that will be on that program. What will be fascinating about Rhapsody in Blue is to take the audience through the piece briefly before they hear it and to show them how clever Gershwin can be in taking this. And how Gershwin takes that same tune and puts, if you will, different clothes on it so the same tune appears different each time he brings it back, for example. And on another occasion, Ben, he brings back the same tune, but he's going to surround it with harmonies this time, which give us the impression that that same tune is asking a question. (laughs) 
Where does he go from there? <laughs> we'll also talk about syncopation. What makes music sound jazzy, syncopated? And as an experiment, I might play a very famous composition of Gershwin's called I Got Rhythm. Yeah. And I play first for the audience the melody, the harmony, the oompa, oompa, oompa rhythmic meter, but it ain't gonna sound swing. It's a bit square, as they say. And now the way Gershwin wrote it. Now, what did I do to it the first time to make it sound so square, to use your excellent word? And uh, why did it sound syncopated the way Gershwin wrote it? That's something that I might talk about to the audience, and they'll enjoy the piece all the more when I play it. A lot of this music is, is things that people would have heard. You know, they might have heard it on the radio or on television. Is there a sense of recognition connecting to classical music that you don't realize you know? It's an interesting question, and it gets back to your original question about how are the programs formulated. I try with each of the programs to play works that are well-loved and well-known so that we can appreciate all the more what these well-known pieces are about and how great they are in terms yeah. of how they've been composed. But I also try to share with the audiences works that are off the beaten track that will, I'm very confident, be welcome musical discoveries for them. So it's a further answer to your excellent question. It, it's a combination of well-known works and less well-known works. You mentioned earlier that this was the fifth anniversary. So how has it developed over those five years? It's interesting. Uh, when I started, I think the idea of a concert pianist talking, not a lecture, but a concert pianist talking before he played, particularly with a Yankee accent, <laughs> I think that people were a little startled. But what's this going to be? And it's taken a while for it to catch on. Thankfully, there have been people who've attended, like David Suchet and his wife, and Norman Lebrecht, who have been kind enough to write uh, some testimonials as to what these programs are about and how they reach out and make music interesting and attractive to listen to. But it's taken a while, and the audience has grown slowly. The fifth anniversary is a milestone, in my view. And uh, though I do these programs now in nearly 20 different cities, most of them in the United States, as ongoing series. Uh, this is a particular joy for me to do them here. Let's talk further about breaking down barriers. So people can come to the concerts, they don't have to dress up. Right. They can clap in the wrong place. Absolutely. And they can know nothing or they can know everything about the music. Right. And I can tell from the questions that I've had here that our audience is a, exactly that kind of a mixture. And I'm delighted when there are people attending their first concert and people who've already heard the Rachmaninoff C-sharp minor prelude 800 times in their life who uh, are happy to hear it again and to know the background behind it. Let's, let's go back to the concerts. We, we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the first concert, which is um, based around Gershwin. I think it also inc incorporates um, Aaron Copeland and a, a favorite of yours, Leonard Bernstein, yeah. someone I think who kind of maybe gave, gave you that idea. Yeah, uh, Mr. Bernstein's programs were my guiding light, so to speak. I'll never forget being a young music student in New York, and Mr. Bernstein was about to conduct the Beethoven Fifth Symphony, which of course, like all snobby teenagers, I thought I knew everything you needed to know about the piece. But he talked for a little bit before he turned around to conduct it, and he did even a few musical examples out of context. And what he had to say about the piece and what he illustrated out of context was such that when he did turn around to conduct the whole performance, I was on the edge of my chair. 
I was listening with far greater appreciation and focus and the feeling, my God, what a great piece of music this is. And that's what he really wanted to do. His, he wanted to share his great love and understanding of the music with his fellow human being. And that was the inspiration for me. With a lot of these pieces, the, the bigger ones, there's so much information coming at um, I think I think in one of the, the concerts later on, you, you, the, the Franz Schubert one, you say the age of the soundbite. Mm. You know, it, we live in an age where we're always being distracted by things. Exactly. If one steps back, I mean, Schubert is one of the most frequently played composers, and the main work on the program, the last sonata Schubert ever composed, which he finished six weeks before his terribly early death at the age of 31. This is a 30-minute musical journey. And he didn't write this to wow the audience with a lot of virtuoso thrills. How does this piece possibly have any relevance in our age of the soundbite, where the average attention span of an adult today is about four seconds? Wow. We're in the what I call the channel-changing generation. You're watching <laughs> something, you get a little bored, you change the yeah, channel. Yeah. Uh, what possible relevance can this piece of music have? And what is there about this piece of music which makes it such that it's played all over the world all the time, and it is one of the great musical journeys uh, you, that uh, you can be taken on. May I give you an example? Yeah. This is the opening of that Schubert Sonata, which I'll be playing on the 31st of May. Now Schubert could have ended the musical phrase right here, but he adds. And there's been a great deal of extra musical meaning added to this rumble. Is this musically suggesting what Schubert must have felt was the impending death, which was to take him over in six weeks. One hears this ghostly trill at specific moments throughout the first movement of this composition, and you begin to hear the work differently when you realize the significance of what seems to be a tossed-off little addition to the musical yeah, phrase. Yeah. And when you point this out to the audience, it has far greater meaning. And one might think of the music as heavenly visions, but with that trill also the sense of the impending death. It's a very moving work. The, the third concert, which, or the one in the middle, should we say, uh, which is uh, Russian Rapture, at Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff. If someone had one record, a cassette, a CD, it, it might be Rachmaninoff. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would be safe to say that in this country, also in the United States, perhaps two of the most popular and frequently played composers are Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff and so beloved by so many people because of their gift for melody. Mm. Both of them had this gift of being able to write melodies that touch the heart, that enchant the ear, that stay in the musical memory. Their music becomes all the more, I think, meaningful today in our age of cacophony, uh, of dissonance, of cross rhythms. And Rachmaninoff in particular is a very curious case because he died in 1943 
His exact contemporaries were some of the most advanced musical thinkers of the 20th century, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, Bartok, Berg. And his music really stylistically is back in the late 19th century with Tchaikovsky's. And yet it doesn't matter where he fits in terms of the calendar, uh, the music goes on forever. And there are pieces that we're going to hear on this program of Rachmaninoff, like uh, this one. famous prelude in C-sharp minor, which he writes when he's still a teenager, a music conservatory student in Moscow. And it's a rare example in the history of music, Ben, of a composer that writes a piece of music that brings him immediate name recognition and worldwide fame, and yet is a piece of music that the composer grows to hate. <laughs> why? What is there about it? And how did it come to be that it was published? And why did Rachmaninoff have to play it over and over and over again for the next 50 years? Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have other works of Rachmaninoff that, as he would have said, even better, show different sides. With Tchaikovsky, here's a composer whose ballet music, orchestra music, concertos, we hear all the time. Yeah, definitely. People might even say too often. <laughs> and yet the solo piano music of this composer is, comparatively speaking, relatively rarely played. And it comes as a shock sometimes even to my fellow pianists that Tchaikovsky wrote over 100 pieces of music for the solo piano. And we hear very few of them. Now, why? Particularly when, when you hear this music of Tchaikovsky, you say, well, it's got the same gorgeous melodies and the sense of drama and fire and romanticism that are to be heard in abundance in the orchestra pieces. So uh, this is a, a, an example, the piano music of Tchaikovsky, for example, pieces that I'm sure will be welcome musical discoveries for most of the people in the audience, very accessible works that are off the beaten track. Okay, if you're ready, I'm gonna ask a few short questions. By all means. <laughs> okay, so we talked about Gershwin um, earlier. Why is Gershwin not considered jazz? It's an interesting question that you ask. Um, of course, there are jazz elements in Gershwin's music, and uh, he lived in the first uh, third of the 20th century, which in the United States is known as the Jazz Age. But it's very interesting when you look, think about Porgy and Bess. He was going in the direction of writing more serious, uh, what we would call classical works and classical forms. He was one of the great songwriters we will ever have, and the melody just seemed to pour effortlessly from him. He wanted to be more than a tune writer, and he wanted his music, of course, to sound as, as the language of his time, the jazz age, if you will. Th these are simple questions. Why was Tchaikovsky an angry person? You listen to the music, you think, he must have been angry. I think all the great composers have fire, if you will, anger, a sense of drama. We're not, when we're talking about a Tchaikovsky or a Beethoven or a Chopin, we're not talking about normal human beings here <laughs> who found life to be, as we say in the States, the proverbial bowl of cherries. They, they, they were extraordinarily sensitive people, questioned why life had to be as difficult as it was, mm. and many of them suffered greatly. Tchaikovsky did, and uh, I think you hear it in, in their music. If they were placid individuals and lived problem-free <laughs> lives, they would not probably have written the music that they did. That makes, that makes good sense. It's interesting, Ben. I would be the first one to defend the principle 
that music does not need anybody to say anything about it. Great music speaks very well for itself. But particularly in this age of what I call musical too much, where you press a button and uh, the Beethoven Eroica Symphony could be background music for you as you walk down the street or whatever, yeah. I think the accessibility of music has a downside, and that's the quality of the listening experience. Mm. Uh, so all I really ask of the audience is that they come in ready to enjoy the programs, to be enriched by this great music that we can share together through the hour that we spend. Maybe I could ask you to give us one last example to finish this podcast. Uh, we mentioned Leonard Bernstein earlier, which certainly for American musicians my age, uh, there probably was no greater influence than Mr. Bernstein. And um, after he died, Humphrey Burton was engaged to write the biography, the authorized biography of Mr. Bernstein. I received a call from him. He says, I understand that you do keyboard conversations. They were very much formatted after what Mr. Bernstein did. He says, um, I'd like to meet you and let, let's talk about his influence on you. We had a long lunch in New York and at the end of the lunch, he says to me very casually, you know, I have an unpublished piano piece of Lenny's here would you be interested to see it? Would you like a photocopy of it? I said, yes, you. thank you very much. <laughs> and um, it's a wedding gift that Mr. Bernstein gave to two friends of his, and it's titled Meditation on a Wedding. And it's interesting, Ben, the middle C on the piano, this mm -hmm. tone, is repeated throughout the composition like a steady beating heart. And above that repetitive middle C, in the soprano register, and below it in the tenor register, one gets some very poignant melodies. Hmm. It's a short piece, and perhaps this would be a nice way to conclude our interview. Jeffrey Siegel performed as part of the Coffee Concert Series on Sunday the 5th of October with, as he mentioned, Gershwin and Friends, Sunday the 1st of February 2015 with Russian Rapture, Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, and finally the 31st of May 2015, Franz Schubert in the Age of the Soundbite. I'm Ben Eshmade and you've been listening to a King's Place podcast. For more details about these events and ticket links, please visit kingsplace.co.uk. Thanks for listening.